The Writer Files, a member of the Podglomerate Network. I want to mention a great resource for writers, and this month's sponsor, Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. I'll expound later in the show, but the short version is this long-awaited book about the craft of creative writing from New York Times bestselling author Steve Almond sets out to debunk the well-meaning but misguided myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and most honest work. Pick up a copy today of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, wherever you buy books, more soon. Greetings, scribes. I have got some exciting news to share. The Writer Files now has an exclusive Patreon community where subscribers will get exclusive access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and content from productivity and publishing experts each month. In the meantime, just head over to patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. It's free to join Patreon to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. Help us start something special. The Writer Files and Podcasters for Justice are creators united to condemn the tragic murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and many, many others at the hands of police. This is a continuation of the systemic racism that's been pervasive in our country since its inception, and we're committed to standing against racism in all its forms. We believe that to be silent is to be complicit. We believe that Black Lives Matter We believe that black lives are more important than property. We believe that we have a responsibility to use our platforms to speak out against this injustice whenever and wherever we witness it. In creating digital media, we've committed to using our voices to speak against racism and police brutality, and we encourage our audiences to be educated, engaged, and to take action. You'll find many resources in the show notes about how you can help. Thanks for listening. other aspect of my writing that's heavily influenced by psychology is my research, which is centered on really how the human mind plays games with uh, itself and reality in order to establish a narrative for itself that is adaptive to the environment. Hmm. You know, as a cognitive social psychologist, uh, I can tell you without any uh, hesitation that the human mind really is built for deception. Greetings, scribes. You're still tuned in to The Writer Files, and I am your humble host, Calvin Reed, sending you calm and healing during these days of unrest. The best-selling and award-winning novelist, Eris Janigian, had a candid conversation with me about the recent mandated dystopia, his circuitous path to best-selling author, and what it means to be a transgressive writer today. He's the author of six novels, all without traditional representation, and critics have hailed his 2012 novel, This Angelic Land, set during the 1992 L.A. riots, as today's necessary book, and his novel Waiting for Lipschitz at Chateau Marmont spent 17 weeks on the L.A. Times bestseller list. Janigian holds a Ph.D. in psychology and was formerly a senior professor of humanities, The finalist for Stanford University's William Saroyan Fiction Prize has also been a contributing writer to West, the Los Angeles Times Sunday Magazine. The second book of Janigian's Waiting For trilogy, Waiting for Sophia at Shutters on the Beach, is a satirical mashup of Nabokov's Lolita and Dostoevsky's Notes from the Underground. 
The book has been described as an unflinching, deadly serious view of male sexuality in the era of Me Too. In this file, Eris and I discussed the life of a lazy author, why graduate school corrupts good writers, wisdom on the importance of mentorship, how the cruel mistress of Los Angeles plays a character in many of his works, the self-censorship of academia, and why life is the best teacher. Stay safe. And if you're a fan of The Writer Files, please click subscribe to automatically see new interviews as soon as they're published and leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts to help other writers find us. Yes, once again, we are returning to the Writer Files, and I am honored today to be joined by a, an esteemed guest. I've got Eris Janigian uh, here today to rap about all things writing. How are you at the apocalypse? Oh, thank you so much for asking. Well, in Fresno, um, it's not anywhere near an apocalypse as it, thank God, turns out. Um, we have had very little, very few hospitalizations and um, deaths. So it's kind of actually what I just described in a Washington Post op-ed piece that just so happened to run today. Um, I described it as a kind of mandated dystopia. Mm. So we're not a feeling this where I live. And in fact, most of California has been relatively, relatively unfazed compared to someplace like New York or, you know, Italy. Yeah. Yeah. And interesting that, you know, it seems that Los Angeles was hit pretty hard and, uh, you know, one of the big, one of the bigger kind of epicenters, um, obviously New York. And I want to talk about Los Angeles because of course, uh, you've written quite a bit of literature about LA and, uh, it is near and dear to my heart as a, as a, uh, a one-time Angelino, should I say? Mm. Um, yeah, I want to talk about, uh, all things LA. So, uh, yeah, let's go back, turn the clock back as we do talk about your kind of origins as a writer and, um, yeah, how you came to be, yeah, this fantastic story. You've kind of, you've, um, you know, you've done all these different, you've worn all these different hats in your life, but now as a novelist and having spent some time, um, you know, on bestseller lists, um, and your very interesting story. Tell us how you came to be best-selling novelist. Well, um, it's been a long, circuitous, completely unbelievable path. <laughs> <laughs> I, I grew up uh, in a kind of an Armenian ghetto in Fresno. My um, a childhood home was about two blocks away from William Soroyan's childhood home. Mm. Um, but other than that, I had no literary uh, associations or inklings, really. Just a kid who liked to play baseball and football and, you know, try to chase girls around <laughs> and deliver, deliver newspapers by bike around the neighborhood. So I had a very uneventful literary childhood. My father was a college grad. Um, my mother was a homemaker and uh, just graduated barely from high school. She was a immigrant. My father was born in Fresno. 
And um, I suppose that, you know, I didn't really think about writing until I was in high school. And at that time, I took one creative writing class and um, the teacher was handing back papers. You know, I think maybe a week later, a short story of a short story she had asked us to write. And she um, didn't hand mine back. And Uh-oh. she'd handed, she'd handed <laughs> all everyone else's. And I was very sad. And I went up to her at the end of the class. And I said, where's my, my, my paper? And she said, my story. She said, well, to be honest with you, I always read your stories at least twice because you're the best writer in the class. And so I wanted to put extra effort into the feedback I gave you. And it was at that moment that I thought, maybe I'm good at this. Um, And I guess that was the first time I thought I was good at, you know, anything of an academic sort or literary sort. And so from there, you know, I just start, you know, thinking of my, this is a possibility for myself, but of course, never, never considered that I would be a novelist at that time. Hmm. Um, and then really I put it aside, that feeling aside, that thought aside. And in college, my junior year, I took a creative writing class, um, thinking I would explore that and found that I had, um, a real, you know, love for it. And according to my uh, professor, a gift. Um, I had, um, he had required us to put together a portfolio of writing. And um, in my case, it was a couple of short stories and a book of poems, maybe 30 poems. But I was pretty lazy all through my life, really, (laughs) <laughs> and anything having to do with school, I always put off at the last minute, though I was a good student. So I had only written when it was due, uh, the week before it was due, I'd only written like, I don't know, five of the poems. And so I peeled off like 10 poems in a matter of a week mm. and turned it in. And then he turned it back, you know, week after I had turned it in and I got an A plus on it. Wow. <laughs> so... It was just this this kind of random um, random uh, feedback from people and and uh, just kept after that I kept writing pretty seriously but mostly poetry and um, I didn't really want to go into a writing program for graduate school I ended up entering into a PhD program in psychology mm-hmm. because I felt like the writing program would kind of corrupt my way of seeing and thinking and my voice, or at least the one I imagined I had. And um, so even as I was uh, writing my dissertation, I was writing my first novel. So I would write the dissertation. I started at about the age of 27, 26 and a half. And, um, I would write it during the day and I would begin my first novel, you know, writing that in the wee hours of the morning. Um, and 
that's how I kind of started out as a novelist. Yeah, interesting. So yeah, I, I mean, I've heard, I have heard this um, posited in the past that you know we can talk about the perils of academia, but uh, of course that you know uh, grad school does that, right? That it it for writers um, doing that kind of like the MFA program, it changes your writing in some way, right? I don't think there's any doubt about it. In fact, the one research study, the one thing I do read is a lot of research studies because I was trained as an academic researcher. The one research study that has tracked this, uh, as a, uh, tried to answer it as a legitimate research question, found that people who go into MFA programs actually have their voice narrowed hmm. um, considerably. And um, actually the diversity of voices is lowered as a result of entering into an MFA. And that doesn't surprise me at all. I think that writers need to live rather than uh, go to school. Of course, everybody needs an education, but not an education in writing. Mm -hmm. You educate yourself in writing by writing and reading great writers and then usually having a mentor, you know, old-fashioned mentor who can, you know, give you, you know, the feedback that you need at the time that you need it. So that was the path I chose. And of course, in Waiting for Sophia, I kind of go after that whole world of the MFA and the entire ambition of <laughs> uh, young minds to uh, reach this level of genius within an academic setting. And I kind of deride that. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of this fantastic... Uh trilogy in the making you just mentioned the second book um that was recently published congratulations and that one is uh waiting for sophia at shutters on the beach uh which is number two in the uh waiting trilogy um and it dives headlong into one of the most impassioned issues of our era sexual harassment and the me too era but um yeah let's talk let's talk about the book before we kind of you know, uh, yeah, maybe go back, maybe go back to book. Want to talk a little bit about, uh, mm -hmm. waiting for Lipschitz at Chateau Marmont and just the, um, again, kind of the waiting sort of for Sophia has been described as a satirical mashup, right. Of going back to kind of the, this great literary tradition. Um, let's talk about kind of, uh, what you are trying to do and where you are going. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, as you mentioned, this is, uh, Sophie is the second book of a proposed trilogy. Um, the first was Waiting for Lipschitz at Chateau Marmont, and that was about a screenwriter who went from riches to rags, a uh, very successful screenwriter, and um, born and raised in Los Angeles, who moves, decides to move of all places to Fresno. <laughs> and at the last minute, he actually visits a friend there, a novelist friend, and, and he's converted to Fresno, almost like a religious conversion. And then uh, at the last minute, just before he's set to leave and move to Fresno, he gets a call from a producer, Lipschitz, uh, saying, meet me at the Chateau Marmont with the, uh, <laughs> uh, the intent to discuss a script that he'd sent him a year ago. Yeah. So these are obviously both these titles are plays off of Waiting for Godot. And my idea was to um, 
think about what, you know, what, what we are currently waiting for in our culture. And obviously God has disappeared for most, you know, intellectual academic types of people, not for me personally, by the way, but for most, let's say liberal progressive people. Um, but yet we are waiting for something. And, um, what that is, uh, is what I'm trying to explore in this, in this trilogy. It's very interesting and fascinating to me, of course, that you've chosen Los Angeles as the muse for this trilogy. I, I'm assuming that part three will be also set in the yes, city of is. angels, uh, where I've spent considerable amount of time myself about five years, uh, in the city. And, uh, but, but yeah, I, I've heard you talk about kind of the process of writing about the city. And of course you've written, is it six, six novels now? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. And it does seem that you keep coming back to our lady, but yeah, there's something, there's some, there's this rich, uh, literary kind of history that, that the city has that not a lot of, you know, not a lot of the New York, um, mm-hmm uh set really maybe even understands or or you know maybe they do or they just don't really appreciate it unless unless i think you've really spent some time um there is something very i don't know haunting about it and you've talked about kind of mm-hmm. the process of writing about it from afar and tell us a little bit about about the city itself and how she, how she plays a, a role also well um, this is uh, the novel that I'm currently writing, waiting for Rafi. Rafi is an Armenian name at the Jonathan Club. This would be the fourth novel um, I've written set in Los Angeles. The first was This Angelic Land, mm-hmm. and that was a set during the 1992 LA riots, also yeah. known as the Rodney King riots. So I'll, when I complete this news novel, I'll be four novels in a row about LA. So I'm kind of, you know, trying to probe it. And, um, I think that Los Angeles is, it is a fascinating and paradoxical place. It's a place that I really fell in love with. I lived there for nearly 30 years wow. and more or less in the same neighborhood. And, um, yet I found it a, an amazingly, um, what's the word? How do you put it in one word? Amazingly deceptive place mm-hmm. for all of its beauty and, um, and beautiful people and very smart and articulate people. It never seemed to, um, be a place that I or many people I knew could call home. Mm-hmm. So that, I think that reality is what I was trying to probe what is this disjunction that I feel and so many people around me felt about the place? Um, partly it has to do with the eternal ambition of the people. I mean, no one there is, you know, not looking out to see what they can get next and how they can keep what they have. And you just find it everywhere. And they don't really have, a, let's call it luxury to develop, you know, what I think the kind of community and uh, stable and lasting friendships that you would find in uh, places like Fresno, for instance. Mm. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's what I was trying to, I've been trying to probe. Probably that's the heart of it. Interesting. 
Earlier in the show, I mentioned an invaluable resource for writers. Truth is the arrow, mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories based on three decades of writing, failing, and trying again. Author Steve Almond is a beloved professor at Harvard and Wesleyan and the acclaimed New York Times bestseller of 12 books of fiction and nonfiction. And in Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, Steve employs the radical empathy he displayed as a co-host of the Dear Sugars podcast with Cheryl Strayed, where they explored the joys and trials of storytelling to explode myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and truest work. The book includes chapters on plot, character, and chronology, but travels far beyond the earnest intentions of most craft books. It also includes writing prompts to generate new work. Pulitzer Prize-winning author Richard Russo called it one of the best books on writing he's ever read, and also the funniest. Pick up a copy of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories wherever you buy books, and add it to your TBR today. And just a quick aside to revisit the exclusive Writer Files Patreon community where subscribers get access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and a lot more. I know that for serious writers, it can be more distracting than ever to cut through the noise, stay productive, and home in on what's happening in the publishing industry. Over eight years, we've provided a looking glass into the habits of professional writers and publishing industry insiders. And as your humble host, I've decided to launch a membership-based Patreon for serious scribes to cut through the noise, swap tips and tricks, and hang out with like-minded peers. Just head over to patreon.com slash the writer files for bonus writing resources, monthly episode breakdowns, writer's happy hour, a community of your peers, ad-free episodes, and more. It's free to join to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash the writer files. Help us start something cool and special. Keep calm and write on. Yeah. As you mentioned, there is this kind of, um, deceptive, uh, I don't know. It's like a mirage, right? Um, Los Angeles represents hope to so many dreamers. And Mm -hmm. it's almost as if the city, this muse who's been, it seems, you know, the the history of Los Angeles is very, is kind of violent, right? Mm -hmm. And of course you've written about that. Um, But the violence goes back decades. And of course um, there's some, there is, some some form of uh i don't know there's like a a, a dark shadow kind of lurking around mm-hmm. every corner in los angeles mm-hmm. these, these kind of ghosts of los angeles of dreamers past who've you know maybe lost their dreams to the city and she's a, yes. she's kind of a cruel a cruel yes. mistress and um in ways it seems like you've you've captured uh kind of the essence of the city in some of these characters uh that you write about Yes, I think that that is that is well said. I I think this, you know, this angelic land has all the characters in that book are from somewhere else. Um, what mostly from abroad and mm-hmm. mostly all Middle Eastern, but also from other parts of the country. So it's a book told from you know not just the point of view of the narrator, but all the characters are from somewhere else and trying to find a home in the middle of a place that is burning itself alive. Mm-hmm. And um, I think the, the this violent, um, tragic nature of the city hit me in 1992, first hit me in 1992 when the riots broke out. Nothing was really the same after that for me. In fact, nothing was the same 
about this country after that experience. It was a, it was one of those life changing moments mm-hmm. to have gone through what is still is the largest riot in U.S. history, and to watch a city um, um, devour itself. Yeah, yeah. Of course, the the backstory there is is uh, you know, has, has historical roots that are deeply, deeply um, entrenched in, in the culture. And man, Los Angeles has a lot, a lot happening there. Um, so it's rich, it's rich soil for literature, I think. And it's not always, ha- it's not always the <laughs> most <Happiest. laughs> hopeful or happiest. Uh, no, no, but the, novels are not hopeful or happy <laughs> tales. Um, right, right. And I did want to also echo your, your comment about, or observation about, uh, New York, I think New York is um, just, it's his own form of narcissism. And LA writers have really fought hard, tooth and nail really, to get, um, you know, the kind of uh, exposure um, that they, that they um, warrant. I've never had a book reviewed by the New York Times and I've been reviewed almost in many other, uh, you know, newspapers across the country. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, that's, you know, that's not, that's not saying a lot because New York Times doesn't, um, review a lot of books. I understand that, but I don't think my struggle, uh, of getting, uh, you know, some exposure there is unique. I think it's true of a lot of really good LA writers. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, well, there, I, there's so many questions I want to ask you, um, in part kind of about uh, the very interesting genesis of um, the second part of this tr- trilogy, or, or should we say kind of the absence or, or um, uh, kind of how, how the book started, uh, mm. where it went to, which might be a mystery that you have solved uh, or not, and uh, yeah, how long it took you to, to write the latest um, in the trilogy. Well, this is, uh, let me start out with this story. After I finished Lipschitz, I immediately knew I was going to write another waiting for book. And I had, um, I got kind of booted out of my office in a very shabby part of town in <laughs> Fresno because I can't work at home. I just had, had family there and they just bothered me too much. So I'd always gotten an office, but uh, you know, my wife had to make sure it was a cheap one. And, you know, being a kind of frugal Armenian myself, I had to make sure it was cheap as well. So I got an <laughs> office in the shabby side of town, and I loved it. I mean, you know, so I had to deal with the homeless people, you know, blocking the stairwell up, you know, going up to my office. Mm. I didn't really care. But um, in the toilets, it didn't work. But it was a wonderful place. And I got booted out of that place. And I was really upset. So I went and got another place in an equally shabby part of town. And I was uh, wrote there for about, between the two offices, I wrote for about a year. And had a uh, first draft of uh, Sophia uh, completed. You know, came into my office one morning and discovered that it had been um, burg- uh, burglarized. And they had stolen, they had, I mean, they torn the place apart. Um, yeah, uh, literally the door off of the jam and they had stolen my, uh, computer and the two floppy drives where I had these backed up, the novel backed up. Oh man. So I lost the novel 
and I had to begin again. It was, it took me about a year to begin writing again. And then when I started writing, I tried to recreate what I had done and wasn't very successful at it. So I had to kind of, I had to kind of, um, just begin again. Um, I knew, um, I've seen the, um, the uh, dark side of the Me Too movement um, evolve um, since, you know, before anyone, before there was a Me Too movement. And um, I thought that this, you know, talking about sexuality and uh, sexual politics and sexual relationships would be a very fruitful and also perilous endeavor. And I enjoy fruitful and perilous endeavors in my writing. <laughs> and um, so I took it on. And, um, as I was writing it, um, you know, more and more, uh, uh, there were more and more developments and indeed, finally there was a Me Too movement. And so I began, uh, you know, I was incorporating what I was happening almost in real time as I was writing the book. In mm-hmm. fact, a couple of the studies in the book are, are they real, they're real studies. I actually cite real studies and have classroom discussions about them, um, in the novel. Right. But, um, there was a lot of things to uh, draw upon, and uh, but but the book really is more about um, you know our human connectivity and our our, our spiritual journey together, at, um, and um, which I felt the Me Too movement th- again the dark side of it, and there is definitely a dark side of it, was really um, jeopardizing and um, making vulnerable this perennial uh, connection that men and women had. And um, I thought this was an epic moment in our culture, and I didn't see anyone really writing about it. Mm -hmm. And that was really odd. So by the time that I finished the book, you know, um, it it seemed like the time was absolutely right for, you know, publication. Yeah. Uh, by the way, with this angelic land, this angelic land was, uh, from what the critics say, was actually the first novel written about the 1992 riots, and that was 20 hmm. years after the riots. Incredible. So I take, I have, I, I kind of enjoy taking on uh, topics that most novelists won't touch, mm-hmm. um, mostly because I find <laughs> it uh, invigorating. And I think that's what novels should do. They should outrage. They should um, they should make people think and rethink. You know, so that's what I did. Interesting. And you know, in that kind of rich literary tradition, do you think if this book had been written hundred years ago, would it have been banned? <laughs> well, you know, it's kind of a funny book. I think you'll agree. There isn't a lot of sexuality in it. No, For, no. The book, the book is, I mean, not a lot of, and that's all deliberate. The book is about sexuality, but it's about the uh, kind of the spiritual nature of sexuality yeah. without getting all fuzzy and cloudy and, you know, uh, new agey at all. Right. Um, the actual sex scenes are limited to two in, in the whole book. Um, so I don't know if it would be banned on the basis of its, um, you know, like it's uh, be considered obscene or vulgar, but it, but it certainly would be banned on the basis of its ideas. And in a weird way, it has been banned today. (laughs) Hmm. Yeah. Talk about that. 
Well, it's obviously a book that's quite timely, and and I think it's very well written. I mean, I I really strive for a, a really wonderful sentence and 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 uh, and a, a flow to the novel and, and good structure. No one's ever, you know, claimed that I'm a lazy writer. <laughs> but when I put when I put the book in front of interviewers, um, many of whom were excited about it as a as a, you know, as a, as a proposed novel, you know, I said, you know, I'm writing this novel and I should be done. I'd like to get you, they were very excited about it. And there was just a deafening roar and sometimes just that outright, um, uh, nasty rejection hmm. of the book once it, once they had read it. I don't think there's any question that there's a sense of keeping books like this off the radar, the public radar. Mm-hmm because it would uh, challenge the uh, narrative um, that so many people now um, abide by and and in in fact rely rely on mm-hmm. so I think that's probably the reason interesting do you consider yourself a rabble rouser um, in any in any form well my wife does uh, my kids do <laughs> but I don't think so. I think that I, I I don't consider myself that at all. I really write from my heart and I write about, you know, I take risks and I'm not afraid of, um, I don't know, um, developing characters that are completely, you know, kind of have run against the grain of what one would expect from a literary novelist. Um, for instance, Sophia is Catholic, very devoutly Catholic. Yeah. And she has a um, very powerful religious valence within her worldview. At the same time, she is a, a prostitute. So that's an old trope, actually, um, both in, yeah, in yogic thought and in Christian myth. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I kind of revive these old, you know, archetypes. Yeah. And that's fun. So I don't think that's rabble rousing. I think it's just reminding. And digging kind of beneath the surface, uh, you know, going back to the idea of, of the archetypes and your back, you know, your teaching, uh, training in psychology. Do you feel like your that taking that that different route as a writer gives you kind of a um, a unique perspective to really kind of dig into, as you say, um, the archetypes or the kind of the, psych- mm-hmm. the psyche of the of these characters. Yes, I think yes, and I appreciate that question. I think it's true. You know, obviously, I had considerable amount of time to absorb the greatest psychologists you know, of the 20th century, including all the psychoanalysts, but also philosophers like Nietzsche and Schopenhauer and all the way through the post-structuralist philosophers, uh, Foucault and Derrida and Lyotard. Mm. So I was heavily involved in, much more involved in psychology and philosophy than I was in writing mm-hmm. um, or English, although I was an English uh, major uh, and I sat in on graduate classes in English. I really didn't pay much attention to any of that. I was busy absorbing psychologists, the great thinkers, really. And the other aspect of 
that the other aspect of my writing that's heavily influenced by psychology is my research, which is centered on really how the human mind plays games with uh, itself and reality in order to establish a narrative for itself that is adaptive to the environment. Hmm. You know, as a cognitive social psychologist, uh, I can tell you without any uh, hesitation that the human mind really is built for deception. <laughs> yeah, I love that. And I, um, it, it absolutely incontrovertible. And uh, so that really informed my understanding of human nature and made, made me very wary of ideology ideologies that claimed um, some, uh, you know, uh, some uh, privilege on the truth. Hmm. Um, not to say they aren't, there aren't facts, and not to say there isn't truth with a big T, but um, uh, it, they're, it's very, they're very, very hard-earned. Yeah, so kind of going back to <laughs> the human mind, um, I'd be interested to know, and I mean, and you can expand on that thought as much as you want to, you know, I wanted to maybe get your take on with, with where we are now, and obviously we're post Me Too, um, which is inter an interesting place to be. But now we're kind of in the in the we're firmly <laughs> entrenched in kind of um, the coronavirus era. Mm -hmm. How how is that gonna? You know, because I know certainly universities and academia are going to go through their own reckoning. You know, so many things are going to change, including the, including the university. But, you know, how do, you, how do you see not only the future of, what the future of academia, but the future of, you know, literature now? You know, does it, mm -hmm. you know, we kind, of, we kind of go through these epochs, epochs, how do you, how do you mm -hmm. pronounce that word? Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, yeah, where are we headed now with your kind of your training? What do you see? Because clearly, you know, uh, publishing is going to go through its its transformation. The university, academia, and uh, literature in general. Mm -hmm. It's a big. Sorry, it's a big, weird. It's a big question. question. I'll, I'll say that before the you know when the coronavirus was um, just barely you know, touching ground in America, I had, I posted a Facebook image that I created in the, and, uh, which said panic is the most contagious virus of them all. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, I'm afraid what we're seeing is something like what Naomi Klein describes in the shock doctrine. Um, I think that this, this, this tragedy is going to be used to make structural adjustments to our society that is going to aggregate power towards those already very powerful. And that seems to me to be consistent with how America, um, as of you know at least the last 30 years, has uh, dealt with crises. Yeah. Not of this particular sort, but of this uh, scale in terms of uh, war or recession, we have to remind ourselves that, um, you know, the police, the, the, uh, police state, um, and the surveillance state that we know it came out of nine 11. Yeah. Um, there was a tremendous aggregation of wealth after the great recession. 
Um, and something like that's going to happen um, now. I'm very, uh, very concerned about it. And um, it will come up in my new novel. Mm-hmm. Um, my new novel is really centered around the opioid crisis. These are all ostensible issues to, to kind of frame and, and give a, uh, a topic to the books. Mm-hmm. All my books you know, are around kind of crises. But, but they more have to do with the spiritual well-being and uh, vitality of our country. And I'm not optimistic, very, uh, very pessimistic, in fact, and cynical almost about what the future holds. I think a lot of people are going to use this to do a lot of dastardly things. Mm, yeah. It seems um, very likely, given the history of uh, the inner inner circles of power, of course, yeah. uh, and crises, as you say, so we have these, and I'd be interested to hear a bit more about, um, you know, how how you're framing the opioid crisis, but, and you know, and I've seen, I've seen effects of it hit very close to home. You know, I mean, it's it's a it's an incredibly tragic story. You know, if you kind of go back to the, even just kind of the, uh, the origins of uh, opioids themselves and, and heroin, mm-hmm. of course. Um, and then, you know, this, is it the, the Sackler dynasty, mm-hmm. uh, and advertising and, and lobbying and, you know, everything that it, we've kind of read in our <laughs> political system, sure. um, is harrowing, but, uh, yeah, so we've, we've got now, uh, what I've kind of described as like this consent, all these concentric circles of crises, right? So mm-hmm. you just l- put one on top of the other. Um, you know, you've got, of course, climate change and the opioid crisis. And, you know, for a minute we had the vape apocalypse. And, and of course, <laughs> right. now the now uh, COVID-19 and the coronavirus. And yeah, I mean, what is next? Um, besides, <laughs> besides the locust, uh, which is a real... Pendant. Yeah, there's there's apparently this <laughs> nasty, nasty uh, uh, bee that's got the a mouth. Oh no, like, that's yeah, right. Like some vice clamp oh up my in gosh. Washington. Killer They'll find wasps. Something. Yeah, yeah. The other thing is that we we can't dismiss that the media has become a you know a place to uh, it's become a place to uh, report uh, things that are spectacular, and uh, it itself is a spectacle. And um, this can't be discounted. Um, newspapers that used to actually report are now, um, you know, I'm not saying anything terribly uh, unique here, but newspapers that used to report and spend a lot of time paying reporters to report um, are now depending on very quick and fast and quick uh, clicks yeah. uh, to generate volume. And, um, I think they, I think they are going to be, uh, somewhere maybe 30, 40 years down the road. If anybody is left to do this kind of reporting are going to be, you know, uh, identified as, uh, as collaborators in a lot of these crises hmm. in, um, fomenting, uh, fomenting these crises. Well, um, yeah, it's pretty interesting that of course, we're all, we've all been asked to shelter, you know, uh, as you said, you know, there's this kind of coming post 
coronavirus uh, surveillance state, which will be really, really, really fascinating to see how how that all comes about, right? With contact, is that you're talking about contact tracing and yes, contact uh, tracing. Is sure. Part of the, the new, the, it, this is going to be the norm. You can bet on it. Facial recognition, and then of course facial recognition. Yes, checking everybody's and temperature. Also, <laughs> and and also, I think it's exposing. I think what we'll see is it's going to expose the um, fragility of this country and the the way it has been compromised by the oligarchs and mm-hmm. the academics, um, eaten from within and without. Yeah. And I think it's uh, China is going to come out the victor um, in this uh, crisis if you if there is such a thing as a victor. But I, I think that I'll take uh, you know our our uh, you know, compromised uh, democracy any day from the um, clearly uh, totalitarian state of uh, communist China. <laughs> right. um, but I think they will come out the victor. And I think there's actually people rooting for our um, decline. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they hope that there's hopes that um, uh, in its place will come become something more uh, based on equality and justice, and and um, but I don't think that's going to happen. I think that's not going to transpire. So that's that's the kind of little bit my my intimations of how things are going to be further down the road, maybe fifteen, ten, fifteen years from now. Hmm. Interesting. Well, as you put it, it it is kind of uh, always fallen to. Writers and particularly f- writers of uh, literary fiction to, um, I don't know, kind of sound the alarm at times in his, throughout but history. But I don't think they are. I don't think they are. I think that I may be taking too many liberties, liberties here, but, you know, I'm going to. <laughs> I think that uh, many writers now are are ensconced, firmly ensconced in academia. There's a kind of group think there. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a self-censorship going on. Um, the um, the r- daring writing um, has no market. People aren't, aren't all that interested to read, period. Um, and the publishers are looking for titles that represent... Um, what the literary you know community reads and um this is all this is all for it kind of focusing on the same kind of uh, imaginative tepidness let's call it and i just don't think it's going to um happen in the literary world unless it's a few very daring souls and will they find print will they find an audience i don't know mm-hmm. i think that, i think your 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 view of it is is a little bit passe. <laughs> well put. Yeah, so I guess before we kind of wrap up with any advice uh, to fellow scribes and just kind of how to stay, how to keep the course, um, are you enjoying any writers right now on your nightstand or just writers you come back to that uh, are inspiring you? Well, I'm... Right now, I'm reading a biography of the Marquis de Sade um, that I've wanted to read for a long time. 
I enjoy I enjoy the sod. I love transgressive writers. I, I like writers who are, you know, carved out of stone from their own quarries. And uh, that's what the sod was. Who do I go back to? Um, you know, I have great admiration for a number of writers, but mostly they're modernists. They're not contemporary writers. Um, the classic modernists are really um, my, you know, my go-tos, Nabokov and Faulkner and, and Joyce and and um, also Cormac McCarthy, mm-hmm. um, who I consider in those ranks, at least Blood Meridian. Mm. Outside of that, I honestly don't find a lot inspiring. My intellectual and spiritual uh, kind of food this, these days is, is astronomy. Hmm. Um, I think that it's a profoundly um, uh, imaginative and awe-inspiring discoveries that are, made, that are being made with these new telescopes. That's really what I, where I tune in to get my inspiration these days. Well, listeners, if you've if you've made it this far, <laughs> we hope <laughs> you're, st- you're, not, you're not completely um, staring at the uh, that bottle of uh, you know whatever it may be, gin, pills. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> oh man, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Um, yeah, so I got to give you a fun one. If you could, uh, of course, pick any author from any era. Yeah. For a uh, an all expense paid dinner to your favorite restaurant in the world, who would you take? Where would you take them? And uh, yeah, what would that be? Oh, I think I'd have to take my, you know, my my uh, literary mentor William Soroyan to dinner yeah. at a great Armenian restaurant right here in Fresno. Amazing. Yeah. Um, that's cool. That connection uh, from your childhood, and if uh, listeners, if you don't know, um, Saran was a uh, allotted novelist, playwright. He he won the Pulitzer. Yeah, uh, two yeah. two times, both yeah. for playwriting and and for a screen. Uh, let's see. Hey, he won an Academy novel. Award. Academy yes, Award. Yeah. Academy Award and Pulitzer. That's correct. And one of the great short story writers in American letters. Yeah, yeah, and of course. Uh, you won a, or you were a finalist for the uh, William Saran Fiction Prize, which is a cool kind yeah. of a circular. That was, that was for my first novel. That's yeah. true. Yeah, very cool. All right. Well, um, yeah, I'll, I'll just mention the book one more time before we kind of wrap it up with any pearls of wisdom um, you want to drop on listeners. But the book, um, the second in the Waiting trilogy is waiting for Sophia at Shutters on the Beach. I, of course, will link to that. And it dives headlong into uh, one of the most impassioned issues of our era, sexual harassment, the Me Too movement, of course, rants against the hypocrisy and decadence of Los Angeles, laments mm-hmm. the censoriousness and self-pitying of academia, and it's been called a uh, challenging, thought-provoking novel. And uh, congrats on the work, my friend. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, yeah, do you want to just drop one little uh, pearl on our our listeners uh, who may be as- aspiring writers and and you know uh, aspiring writers? Yeah, avoid MFA programs. <laughs> get a job. Take notes at night. 
<laughs> you know, um, I think I, um, in Sophia, the uh, narrator says, you know, scour the streets for your scabrous material. I like that. And yeah. I think that's, that's what I would advise you to do. And, and um, do not be afraid of thinking, thinking uh, transgressive thoughts because hmm. uh, that's, that's what will uh, feed you in the long run. Yeah, I like that. That's a great place to wrap. Of course, you had mentioned um, finding a mentor, which is also great advice. And living life, right? Just living. Perhaps just living. Yeah. Breathing. <laughs> let's, let's all do our best to breathe easier in the future, uh, even though we all be, may be required to wear masks <laughs> anonymously. It's such a, such a strange future we have ahead of us, so we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> well, Harris, thanks so much for taking the time. I hope to get a um, martini with you at some point in the future yeah, in Los Angeles uh, at one of those uh, just uh, iconic locales, maybe at the, uh, uh, what's that? What's that weird Japanese restaurant up on the hill that was like a watchtower during World War II? Yeah. It's uh, it's uh, it's Yamashino's. Yamashiro, yeah, something like yeah, that. Yeah, it's right on. Uh, it's right on uh, uh, Franklin. Yep, yep. Just uh, just west of uh, Highland. Very cool. All right, my friend. Best of luck to you, and come back again uh, and drop some more wisdom on us in the future. Love to. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of The Writer Files. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to the show and leave us a rating or a review to help other writers out there find us. You can always leave a comment or a question and visit the entire archives at writerfiles.fm. And you can chat with me on Twitter at Kelton Reed. Cheers. Talk to you next week.